this morning is taken from the Acts of the Apostles, starting in chapter 6, verse 8 to 15, and then again in following on in chapter 7. Now Stephen was a man full of God's grace and power, and he did great wonders and miraculous powers among the people. But opposition arose. However, for members of the synagogue of the freed men, as it was called, the Jews of Cyrene and Alexandra, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against the wisdom of the Holy Spirit by which he spoke. Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people, and the elders, and the teachers of the law, and they seized Stephen, and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against the holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. So Stephen now goes ahead in chapter 7 and gives his reply, which is really the history of the um, Jewish people. And we join the story again in chapter 7, verse 44. Our forefathers had the tabernacle of testimony with them in the desert. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. Having received the tabernacle, our fathers under Joshua brought it with them when they took to the when they took the land from the nations God drove out before them. It remained in the land until the time of David, who enjoyed God's favour, and asked that he might provide a dwelling place for God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built the house for him. However, the Most High does not live in the house among men. As prophet says, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stiff-necked people, with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You're just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not persecute? They even killed those who persecuted the coming of the righteous one. And now you have betrayed and murdered him. You have received the law that was put into the effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth against him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see all heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this, 
They covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him and dragged him out into the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And while they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this against them. When he had said this, he fell asleep. And Saul was there, giving his approval to his death. We're now going to go to a video by Open Doors to tell us a little bit more about all of this. In chapter 7 of Acts, a Christian is martyred for the first time amid a hail of stones. What was it that got him killed? Well, he had a dangerous idea, a very dangerous idea. And he puts it like this. He says, God's temple is not built with human hands. His name was Stephen and that got him killed. Of course, it didn't help that he said it in the temple to the very people who ran the temple and it didn't help that he said it in a trial in a way that didn't attempt to win friends and appeal to the jury. What Stephen said, how he said it and where he said it got him stoned to death by religious leaders. The first Christian to die for his faith. Stephen said, God's temple is not built by human hands. It doesn't seem that revolutionary. It doesn't even seem true on the face of it because aren't all temples ultimately built by human hands? What's so wrong about a temple? What did Stephen see that got him killed? Something that he seemed to see as a Greek-speaking Jew as opposed to the apostles who were Hebrew-speaking Jews, and they were a lot more positive toward the temple than Stephen was. What does he see in a temple that makes him speak against it so boldly? What's a temple doing for Stephen to lead us away from God rather than toward him? Well, think of it this way. If you wanted to send a letter to God in the first century AD, you would address it like this. God, Holy of Holies, Temple Mount, Care of the High Priest, Jerusalem, Palestine. That's where God was. That was God's address. And the whole religion revolves around making sure that you're pure enough to come close to God's address, to the Holy of Holies. The purer you were, the closer you got. If you stayed pure, God liked you. You could approach. But if you weren't pure, if you hung around with the wrong people, if you didn't wash your hands the right way, if you didn't say your prayers the correct way, if you didn't sacrifice the right animal, whatever, God wouldn't like you. God wouldn't hear you. God wouldn't save you. Being part of a purity religion 
is a terrifying business because here's the problem. You never know whether you've been pure enough. Pure enough for God to actually like you. Jesus disagreed with this whole purity system. So much so that when he said the temple would be destroyed, <laughs> the priests arranged for him to be killed. A religion that's all about becoming pure to be saved has a very important benefit for those in charge of it. It's a great system for controlling people. When I was working in China, I learned about the controlling power of religion from a very powerful man, a provincial leader in fact, pretty much with the power of life and death over tens of millions of people. I got in to meet him one time at a banquet and it was arranged by house church leaders who said, you know, this is a special opportunity here. Give him the gospel. Nobody's more powerful in this province than he is. Well, it was coming up to Christmas, so I told him the story of the nativity. And he began to listen very closely. So, so well, in fact, that I thought he might be thinking of becoming a Christian. And then he said, well, thank you for telling me about this, this religion. He leaned back and he spoke to one of his aides and he says, how many Christians do we have in this province? He got a reply and it seemed to surprise him. And he gave this guy another order and the aide rose and left. And then he turned to me and he said, thank you again for telling me about this amazing religion. He said, I've just banned the celebration of the nativity in this province. I said, you've banned Christmas. He said, yes. I said, well, why? I said, well, isn't it obvious? The idea that God could be a child born to a no-name girl in a no-name village, if that were true, God could be anyone. And God could be everywhere. He said, I can't have that getting around. I can't manage that, he said. And I said, well, what do you mean you can't manage that? You can't tell me you think you can manage God. And he said, well, yes, of course. I said, well, well, how would you manage God? He said, it's simple. You keep him in the temple. You keep him in the temple. He said, look at every Chinese village. It's got a temple. A peasant goes into the temple and they light a stick and they put it in an orange or a uh, a lemon, and they ask for a bit of good luck from their ancestors. He said, no harm done. Stays in the temple. Not dangerous. Doesn't really get out. This idea that God doesn't stay in the temple, but could be working through anyone, at any time, everywhere. He said, oh, I can't manage that. It was like talking to Herod the Great or Caiaphas, the kind of men that put Stephen to death. And when he makes his great defense speech in the book of Acts, he's asking the question, well, where did our great ancestors in the faith meet God? Did they meet him in the temple? Where did Abraham meet God? When he was a sun worshiper in Iraq. Where did Joseph meet God? When he was a prisoner in Egypt. Where did Moses meet God? When he was a shepherd in the desert in Midian. None of them, none of the great ancestors of the faith actually met God in the temple. Aren't you making a bit too much of this?
Well, they didn't like it. What is a temple made with human hands, as Stephen means it? Well, a temple, it's something we build ourselves to keep God in. And it's very subtle because we think we're building it to get to God. But actually, it's how we keep him away. It's how we keep him out. So we always have to look at our lives and ask, well, is there a temple we have constructed with our own hands to keep God in, to manage him, if you like? Might be a tradition, a building, a place, a doctrine, a book, an experience even. Something that keeps God in, something that tries to make God safe and predictable, something we do that makes sure he's always on our side. It takes a lot of energy to keep God in a box like that. And it's very dangerous, dangerous to us, I mean, because God doesn't stay there. God can't be managed. And it's crazy to think that he can, but there's something in us that, that attempts to. So a temple, according to Stephen, is the way we try to keep God at bay. And if we realize that's what we're doing, then actually God is, as it were, let out of the temple. But if you want your God safe and predictable and manageable, oh yes, build a temple for him. But if you want God to be who he really is, dangerous, just, sovereign, accepting, then we better dismantle that temple and live. To be honest, we never thought God was confined to this church building for good reason. We know what the New Testament says about the church. We are the church. We've always seen our church building as being a workaday, flexible, chair movers paradise, a place where we can be hospitable and worship God freely and run around and drink coffee and pray and talk. Many of us could give strong personal reasons for believing that God is not confined to our building. We could speak of powerful experiences of his love and grace far from these four walls. A starlit night, a newborn child, a beautiful place, have all been epiphanies for us. And so too the storm and the hospital bed and the place seemingly abandoned by God. We've had epiphanies there as well. So we never thought that God was confined to this building or in fact any building. And we never wanted to erect a special place to keep God boxed in or safe or somehow ours. Frankly, it helps that our church building isn't particularly going to win any beauty contests, however much we value the incredible things that, that go on here. Of course, it's very well looked after. So, it's not the building we miss, really. It's partly the people we miss, naturally. There's no guilt in that. We love our friends and we are grateful for the community 
of which we are a part. We love welcoming people who are new to faith or curious or broken, knowing that we are all those things too. We love what can be done when God's people work together. Of course, we miss each other. But we also know we are not a social club. The centre of gravity of our church life is totally different. The, the focus is on God and his kingdom, on what God is accomplishing, on what God is inviting us to be part of in the world. It's a bonus that we get to do this with other people, but it's God we serve. Church is still happening without this building. Real church, good church, happy church, broken-hearted church, reaching out church. Yes, we mourn that we can't meet together in big groups and congregations. We mourn that we can't currently put on the events that we long to. We mourn that some friendships are on hold, some personal comforts and encouragements are shelved for now. It's hard. But here's what I learn from the persecuted church in Acts and across the world. The persecuted church often thrives and grows with far more taken away from them than is taken away from us right now. They have greater risks, greater uncertainty, greater hostility, greater personal jeopardy than any of us can imagine. If the persecuted church can thrive and grow and be faithful to Jesus, with lots more taken away from them than access to a building and the permission to meet in large groups, then what is stopping us growing and thriving through this lockdown? The barriers are small and real, and they're mostly in our minds. But one thing that may happen, I hope does happen, is that now, and through the autumn, and into next year, we take more real ministry out of this building and into our city. Into homes and places of work and with the most vulnerable and the prison and the university and the hospital. Let's let God lead us out of our building and into our city.